now's where the bullets start. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Steve Vinson. That's Paul Schultz. Hey, how you doing? And this is Softcore History. Should I start the tape? Hit it. Professor? Yes, dear? Will there be any extra credit? I am so glad you asked. Anybody who knows me knows I love Dan Carlin and his podcast called Hardcore History. Now, Dan talks about not being a historian, but we all know that, uh, you know, he has a degree in history and he knows all the historians and he's just like, whenever he says I'm not a historian, I'm just a fan of history, everybody laughs because Dan does the in-depth thing. And we know I love it. And you might also remember from the Don't Panic radio show that we had a little segment called Softcore History. Well, obviously, Softcore History was a playoff of hardcore history. But since I'm not a historian, I barely took history in high school, didn't take any history in college. Um, yeah, I don't have the in-depth knowledge and background that Dan Carlin does, but I can be entertaining and I can look up a Wikipedia article. And so softcore history really was meant to be informative, but really also entertaining and kind of fun. So the Don't Panic Radio Show, as you know and are saddened by, uh, ended a few years ago. And Paul and I ever since have been experimenting with different, uh, podcasts that we could restart. We came up with this idea of why not have a podcast just dedicated to that segment, that software history segment. So that's what you're about to get is an entire podcast series uh, just called Softcore History. Think of it like, um, you know, I heard Russia was maybe going to invade Ukraine and I kind of remember something about Crimea, but I, you know, I can't remember whatever. So you could go to the Wikipedia article and read up on it. Or you could listen to Softcore History, and you'll get about the same in-depth coverage that you might get from Wikipedia, but it might be like as entertaining and irreverent as, say, I don't know, Rhett and Link uh, in Good Mythical Morning. I've always said we were as good as Rhett and Link. We just have more lower back pain. <laughs> um, so the season that we're about to start is about Russian history. But we're going to start at the end. So episode one is called Putin's Green Men. And it covers the period from when the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 90s up until about 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea and invaded eastern Ukraine. And that should give you the enough background to kind of understand a little bit about what's going on now. It's timely and it's topical, but it's really history. This is not a current events uh, show. So we're going to get into episode one now. And uh, if you like it, uh, subscribe, like, what do they say on the YouTubes? Uh, like and subscribe and um, let us know what you think. Oh, stop stalling. Come on. I can't think of this, all this noise. Or is it because I've built a stronghold around Greenland? I've driven you out of Western Europe and I've left you teetering on the brink of complete annihilation. I'm not beaten yet. I still have armies in the Ukraine. <laughs> the Ukraine. You know what the Ukraine is? It's a sitting duck. A road apple, Newman. The Ukraine is weak. It's feeble. 
I think it's time to put the hurt on the Ukraine. I come from Ukraine. You not say Ukraine weak. Yeah, well, we're playing a game here, pal. Ukraine has came to you, but I take your little bonus. Episode 1, Putin's Green Men. Back in 2018, I wrote a blog post outlining a novel that I'll probably never write. It speculates how, starting at the beginning of the 21st century, the American people became used to the ever-increasing presence of armed security personnel in everyday life. Airports, concerts, parades, the mall, even our kids' schools were always under the watchful eye of armed guards, police, paramilitary security guards, private security contractors. After a string of attacks on public places and the deaths of dozens of people, including little kids, it was nothing to see a tank-like vehicle with a group of M16 toting tough guys hanging around the school carnival. It was assumed that this was the price of freedom, to be free to move around without fear of being blown up or gunned down by a terrorist. People were willing to put up with this increased paramilitary presence. Now, the Russians are patient. They have endured for centuries. They take the time, years, even decades, to train thousands of Russian special ops forces to be like Americans. From how they hold their weapons, to the way they speak, to the little jokes they make. They set up security contractor firms in the U.S. They get larger and larger contracts for more and more sensitive and high-value events, schools, government buildings, TV and radio, etc., Meanwhile, they infiltrate the National Guard, the FBI, other government security organizations. In a coordinated attack over the course of a week or so, they seize buildings and kidnap high-level officials in the government, in the military, in domestic security agencies. Abroad, they use the confusion and lack of reliable information to freeze the U.S. military into non-action. That was a fictional account. Now we're back in the real world. There was a moment during the protests of 2020 when some men showed up in Washington, D.C. in unmarked military vehicles, and they were wearing military outfits and carrying military weapons, but they had no insignia, no patches, just black military outfits and body armor and helmets. The press would ask who they were and under whose authority they were operating, and they refused to answer. For at least a day or two, we didn't know who they were or what they planned to do. It turned out they were federal agents, ostensibly there to protect federal property. They had been ordered to remove insignia for some reason. Now imagine the same scenario, but instead of revealing who they were in a day or so, they just stick around. As protests widen and become more serious, these men, dressed in green outfits instead of black, start to organize and take positions in front of government buildings. One day, at one moment, as if on cue, they all take action and start moving into police stations and into other, other government buildings, and they start to move on military bases. They invade and they seize television, radio, internet provider offices. There's an information blackout. They even enter and take over the Capitol building, ordering the legislature to evacuate. In a short time, everyone realizes they have taken control of the entire district. It's 2014, and when the lights come back on, it's clear that Russia has just annexed Crimea by force without firing a shot. The new legislature, handpicked and put in place by the green men, votes overwhelmingly for Crimea to leave Ukraine and join Russia. 
So as we're recording this, Russia and Vladimir Putin appear to be on the verge of invading Ukraine. Uh, depending on who you believe, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of troops on Ukraine's border and any day Russia may invade. So it looks like it could happen again. But what got us to, like, first of all, what is Ukraine? What got us here? I mean, why would Russia want to invade Ukraine? Why would Ukraine care? And that's what we're going to cover here today from the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s up until this 2014 moment where not only did they annex Ukraine, but they invaded Eastern or annex Crimea, but they invaded Eastern Ukraine. So first of all, Ukraine, what is that? Well, that's the country, like if you picture a map in your head, you got Russia, this huge country uh, that spans Europe and Asia. Ukraine is the country just to the west. It's like, you know, between what we think of as Western Europe and Russia. Just this big country, no natural borders, no mountains, no rivers, no big, you know, there's rivers, but there's no like major body of water that kind of separates Ukraine from Russia. And it's been kind of a bone of contention ever since the Soviet Union collapsed because of where it is and the fact that there are no natural obstacles. You can think of it as a Soviet state. You remember, you know, Soviet Union was USSR, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Well, it was one of the socialist republics. And it provided sort of the first line of defense. If Western Europe ever rolled through what we used to call the Eastern Bloc and tried to invade Russia, well, they had to get past Ukraine first, right? So Ukraine had a lot of military bases. It had a lot of nuclear silos. It was pretty much the, the Soviet Union's first line of defense. So if the U United States and Western Europe, NATO, ever rolled over Eastern Europe and tried mm -hmm. to invade, you might get through Eastern Europe, but you ain't getting past Ukraine. No. <laughs> no. All right. So let's back up. All right. The Soviet Union, you know, was Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Latvia, Lithuania, all the stands around the bottom. <laughs> all the Anias and stands. Yeah, all the Anias and the stands. You got Kazakhstan and, you know, Georgia not the state, the country, but it was a Soviet <laughs> republic. Like, again, USSR, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Think of them like states in the U.S., mm -hmm. kind of. So in the 80s, Mikhail Gorbachev was the leader. We all remember the dude with the funny uh, splotch on the top of his head, right? During that fun time in history that certainly can't repeat itself. Right. <laughs> um, so you had Mikhail Gorbachev, and actually when Chernobyl happened, Mm -hmm. Um, and Chernobyl was the nuclear accident and that was actually in Ukraine, but we didn't know at the time. We just, it was all Russia to us. Right. Right. But, right. Cause well, American education. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, we, they were considered, and we'll get into this in, in the next episode, but you know, the Soviet union was just considered this big evil empire mm -hmm. and it was just a black box and they were all a bunch of robots and they hated America cause they, cause we had McDonald's. I remember we were when we were watching, you and I were watching Red Heat, and you're like, I hate how they do Russians, how everybody's just a robot, and it's all about efficiency. And so, yeah. I, so yeah, that's exactly how we were led to believe it was over there. So he was really freaked out by the Chernobyl disaster, and he felt like it was time to kind of reform. Because if you look at it now that Soviet Union has fallen, a lot of that stuff has been declassified. It's really clear that that type of centrally run state economy, whatever, and, and the secrecy. I mean, there's a lot that went into what caused the Chernobyl disaster, mm -hmm. but part of it really was how they ran things, right? 
-hmm. and there wasn't openness and there wasn't uh, this ability to learn from mistakes and actually be able to challenge problems. And it was just a corrupt, not a good system. And Gorbachev was just freaked out. Plus there were some summits with Ronald Reagan that were going not too bad. And the <laughs> two of them hit it off pretty well. And the Soviet economy was just in a shambles. Mm. Well, first of all, like the rest of the world, cause there was like a global, some global problems, global recession going on. But also, you know, as much as we hate Reagan, he as much as <laughs> I put it this way, this is a, this is an objective show, not a political show. So, for all of his faults, and he had some, yeah. uh, Reagan had some good good sides to him too. If you wanted to defeat the Soviet Union and you wanted to win the Cold War, uh, he was pretty smart in some of the things he did. Uh -huh. Star Wars being one of those things, you know, strategic defense caused the Soviets to spend themselves to death. <laughs> Not to mention you had Afghanistan, which uh, is called the graveyard of empires for a reason. Mm -hmm. And the Soviets had invaded and they were bogged down in a really expensive war there. And there was unrest at home in the Soviet Union because you know, Russian mothers and Ukrainian mothers and, and others don't like seeing their sons coming home in body bags right. for some country that we don't even know why we're there. Right? I sometimes think Star Wars was a bluff. Yeah, I was, <laughs> you and a lot of his, historians. <laughs> hey, but I'm I not mean, a historian. Note that it's 2022 and we still don't have it. Yeah, <laughs> it, got a space it may force, indicate though. that it wasn't possible then, <laughs> it ain't possible now. Right? Yeah. Okay, so you've got this situation where Gorbachev really wanted to try to ease up on the whole uh, state-run economy and try to bring some reforms in. As this was happening, a few of the Eastern Bloc countries, you know, your, your Polands and your Yugoslavias and your Czechoslovakias and those places, they started to get rid of some of their communism and Gorbachev like let them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this didn't really sit well with like the old guard, Soviet military sort of empire minded folks. Right. So the military actually tried a coup. Um, so you might remember those of you who are old enough to remember, um, you know, tanks and, uh, you know, I think Gorbachev was off at, at his private, at a private residence, like a vacation type place. And they surrounded the place and, they weren't able to get them out of there. People went to the streets and the this thing failed. Now we're in the 1991 timeframe. Boris Yeltsin was actually elected president of Ru the Russian Federation before the Soviet Union collapsed, which was kind of unusual because that was the first time they actually had anything approaching sort of a free election. That's part of you could start to see some of the reforms coming in. Uh, Boris Yeltsin's this guy. He wins, you know, president of the Russian Federation, which was the largest, most populous, and the wealthiest of the Soviet republics. And as you can imagine, it's why we all called it Russia, even though it was not just Russia. Yeah. We, we just called everything <laughs> Russia, right? Yeah, pretty much. Well, part of the oh. reason is Russia was the juggernaut, you know, it was yeah. the 800-pound gorilla in the room. The history poindexters will, would be quick to correct you if you called it Russia at that point. Technically, it's the USSR. Like, yeah, we know that. So Yeltsin is elected president of the Russian Federation at a time when it's just a state. So he's like a governor. Mm. And then when the Soviet Union collapses, since Russia is the biggest, you know, the Russian Federation is the biggest, you know, it'd be like if uh, the U.S. collapsed in the California Federation and the California was, you know, had a federation of California, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico and Texas, you know, and the U.S. Mm. collapsed. Well, mm. California would probably get all the nukes in the 
seat at the UN table and everybody would start negotiating directly with them. And that's kind of how that would go. Well, that's what happened with the Russian Federation. So now Boris Yeltsin's in charge and having Boris Yeltsin in charge is kind of like having this uncle who you love because you get along and he (laughs) seems to make good decisions most of the time. And he's a nice guy. But, you know, he has a little too much to drink sometimes. So you're like, <laughs> I yes, I want you to take me to the baseball game, Uncle Boris. But I don't want you driving me back home because you'll be drunk. <laughs> so Gorbachev resigns. Yeltsin's now in charge. And in 1991, 90% of Ukrainians have a vote to become independent of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Including, by the way, at this time... Crimea, which you can think of as like a little, it's almost like an island. It's a peninsula, but the, to get on it, like there's just this little strip of land. Like it's almost like you cut off that little strip of land and the Crimea is just kind of out there. It's going away. Yeah. (laughs) Even though like 75% of the people in Crimea speak Russian, even they, majority of them voted Uh to become independent of the Soviet Union. So in December of 91, Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia all get together and decide to dissolve the Soviet Union once and for all. So now the Soviet Union is dissolved in 91. Kazakhstan becomes one of the world's leading nuclear states. (laughs) A place no one had ever heard of until that moment in time. Right. (laughs) Like when the Soviet Union, I remember this, Soviet Union collapses and everybody's like, well, what about the nukes? And people are like, ah, don't worry about it. They're in Ukraine and Kazakhstan. It's like one of those places that I always get stuck with and risk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the international community is like, this cannot be. And they all got together and decided and somehow got Kazakhstan to agree to give up their nukes. They also moved all the nukes out of Ukraine and kind of moved everything back into Russia. So I guess everybody decided probably better to let Russia just keep the nukes <laughs> and uh, get them out of all these other countries. Yeah. One of the things that didn't go so well was Chechnya. Uh very large uh, Muslim Islamic population. There was a war from 94 to 96 where they were trying to break away. The Russian army was just in shambles at that time. They tried to go in there, put down the insurrection, whatever you want to call it. Uh (laughs) Um, Because Russia was trying to hold on to Chechnya, by the way. They didn't let Chechnya be their own thing. Chechnya didn't want any of it, but the Russian army went in there and just got embarrassed. (laughs) The economy was terrible as as a result of that, but also there was a worldwide recession in the late uh, 90s before the dot-com thing really kicked in. And so Russia's economy was also pretty bad. So Yeltsin ends up resigning. Enter the main character in today's story, (laughs) (laughs) Vladimir Putin. Not necessarily a hero of this story, but the main character. Right. So Putin was this former KGB guy Mm. Uh, really, and he has said, has been quoted as saying the breakup of the Soviet Union was one of the tragedies of the 20th century. Mm. And so he hasn't kept it any secret that he would like nothing better than to rebuild the Soviet Union to its old glory. Right. So he starts that in the late 90s, early 2000s. Nobody can say they didn't try to warn us. Yeah, right. (laughs) He's rebuilding the military. The economic strength is coming back. Of course, there's still war with Georgia. Things have their ups and their downs. But there's always this issue of Ukraine, right? Which way are they going to go? So in 2010, there's this populist, well-liked, very entertaining. (laughs) He's elected, and he he also happens to be pro-Russian. He's elected president of Ukraine. He sort of cozies up with Putin. 
sort of pushes the West, because there was always this question of NATO. NATO, mm-hmm. you'll remember, is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And they were the military alliance of Europe and the United States that said to the Soviet Union, an attack on one NATO country is considered an attack on all of us, and we will all defend each other. So the Soviet Union collapses, and you say, well, what do you do about NATO? Well, instead of dissolving, you know, they dissolved what was called the Warsaw Pact. The Warsaw Pact was Soviet Union's and the Eastern Bloc countries' answer to NATO. Uh, They dissolved the Warsaw Pact, uh, but NATO didn't dissolve. In fact, NATO started expanding. So, you know, East Germany, which was part of the Eastern Bloc, Warsaw Pact, of course, they're incorporated into West Germany, forming just the reunified Germany. That's part of NATO. And then Poland and then these other countries in the Eastern Bloc start joining NATO. If you're sitting in Russia watching all this happen, you're like, Mm -hmm. this is not good for us. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was always the question of will, will they or won't they? Will Ukraine join NATO? Well, even though this, um, populist guy that was elected in 2010 was pro-Russian, there was still talk of joining the European Union. European Union's this economic deal that they have in Europe that really ties together European nations. And once you're tied together economically, it militarily isn't that far behind, right? If you're Mm -hmm. part of the EU, there's strong interest in keeping you stable and keeping other people from invading you, right? So the U- president of Ukraine goes to this conference where he's supposed to sign this agreement to join the EU. And instead of signing the agreement, he says, nah, I'm not going to sign it. Probably his boy Vladimir called him up and said, hey, you will not be joining the European Union. And he's like, yes, <laughs> OK. In, in, in Russia, European, you don't join European Union. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> European Union join you. This was in uh, 2013. So these protests break out and they go on for a long time. They grow, they get, you know, they try to crush them. They, mm-hmm. they can't crush them. A lot of people die. A lot of people get shot. You know, we think, and we're rightfully so, like our protests are brutally handled by the police. <laughs> but when we say brutal, <laughs> yeah, like the Ukrainian, Ukrainian forces were loyal to this president were really brutal yeah well they went on long enough that finally this guy just had to and there's a lot of details around this but we could do three podcasts just on these these protests and it's really the power of the people rising up mm-hmm. you know and they go on strike they surround where this guy is staying and they just say look your choices are <laughs> resign <laughs> or you could have new elections and so mm-hmm. they had the new elections the guy flees to russia a pro-Western, like anti-Russian president is elected in like a landslide. Mm-hmm. You know, Russia's kind of like, oh crap, our guy just got kicked out. Uh, the new guy's pro-Western. Not only are they, and they did, they joined the EU. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, is NATO next? Meanwhile, you have a lot of Russian-speaking people in Ukraine. And the reason language is important is if they're Russian-speaking, they probably have, and it's not just they speak Russian, it's like their families, they, they could trace their lineage to Russia, you know? Yeah. Like they're, they're Russian, Russians living in Ukraine almost, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, they, these Russians are very loyal to, the, to Russia. These, these Ukrainians are loyal to Russia. And they live mostly in the eastern part of Ukraine, you know, the part that's close to Russia. Also, a lot of Russian-speaking people living in Crimea. So Vladimir Putin's starting to freak out. 
is starting mm-hmm. to say, look, uh, the duly elected, democratically elected president was just kicked out in a revolution, in a coup, basically. That's not right. And our you know, Russian-speaking people, ethnically Russian people, are telling us are, that they are being oppressed by the Ukrainian government, the new Ukrainian government, which we consider to be illegitimate. Help, I'm being repressed. Now you see the violence inherent in the system. <laughs> so these areas in eastern Ukraine, there are uprisings, but on the other side. So like now the Russian, the ethnic Russians are rising up, start, and they call them separatists because now they're saying, well, we want our section. And the section is kind of called the Dunbas section, D-U-N-B-A-S oh. section. It's mostly Russians, ethnic Russians. Mm-hmm. And they're rising up and wanting to rebel and separate and not be part of Ukraine. They want to be part of Russia. And a bunch of Russian military, without insignia, without you know any sort of identifying whatever, invades eastern Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, starts taking over cities, starts taking over, you know, just there's a war. It's an all-out war now. And everybody's going, hey, Russia, you can't invade Ukraine. And Russia's like, it ain't us. Those are just volunteers. <laughs> Right. Yeah. The military guys just volunteered. They took off their insignia and volunteered to go invade. And everybody's like, you were not idiots. We <laughs> and then right at the same time is when the whole story that we started this off with, where these guys just show up in Crimea, mm-hmm. they go camp out in front of military base. There's this huge military base in the city called Sevastopol and right. it's on the Black Sea. And it's been a Russian military base since Reagan's grandma was a baby, Oof. maybe even longer. Um, <laughs> it's very important because if Russia, if the Soviet Union and Russia doesn't have that military base and that that naval base, mm-hmm. they have very little access to the Black Sea. And if they have very little access to the Black Sea, they have no access to like the Mediterranean Sea and anything mm-hmm. other than going north which we know half the time is frozen, right? That's a very important military base to them. They pretty much just took it over. Like I, I've seen some, I was watching research in this, I was watching some uh-huh. YouTube stuff where these huge contingents with a Russian, you know, they're Russian, they're speaking Russian, and, but they don't have any patches. They got no insignia or anything, yeah, right? Yeah. And everything's been painted over on their their armored vehicles and stuff, just thousands of them outside this military base. Then they ju- you just see the commander of the military, the Ukrainian commander of the military base walking out and reporters sticking microphones at his face. Like, uh-huh. what's going on? And he's like, well, I talked to the commander of these forces and he said, they won't shoot at us if we don't shoot at them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that was part of it. The other part of it was these guys just showing up on street corners. And that's why I brought up the thing that happened in D.C. over uh, in 2020. Uh-huh is when that happened, I was like, hey, that's exactly like what I wrote about when I wrote mm-hmm. that blog post. Mm-hmm. You know, and do you remember that, by the way? You yeah. yeah. I didn't remember it until you started talking about it. Yeah. And I'm like, the stuff we forget because we're living in the moment. <laughs> yeah. And, and whoa, what a moment. <laughs> it's a moment, all right. It's a couple of moments. <laughs> it, that was fl- freaking me out because I was like, wait a minute. That's what I wrote about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this is exactly how it could go down. Didn't These like guys just show up. And as it turned out, the reason they didn't have the insignia for, in the U.S., these dudes dressed in black, was Trump 
seems to handle the, again, not political, but you mm. could objectively say sometimes his PR is a little awkward. <laughs> and so the, you know, the folks that he surrounds himself sometimes are a little, you know, uh, also a little awkward. <laughs> and so the idea was, Hey, we can just deny that it's our guys. And if something bad happens, we'll just be like, well, we don't know who they were. It's just like, well, how stupid is that? But anyway, yeah. so that's what they did. These dudes, except they were dressed in green instead of black, just uh -huh. started showing up on the street corners. I remember this in 2014 thinking, this is weird, right? And uh -huh. they're asking uh, Putin, who are these guys? He's like, I don't know who they are. And, uh, you know, they just, they're there. And then all of a sudden, boom, they just like, walk into the police stations, walk into the legislature, shut down the TV stations. And you're mm -hmm. like, wow, they just took over a a big section of a country. It'd be like if Mexico took over uh, Arizona right. <laughs> just by right. showing up one day, you know, the result of all this, of course, aside from just the suffering of the folks living in Eastern Ukraine uh, at this time, um, just any time the game of risk <laughs> can look, you know, it looks so clean and sanitized, but there are actual people on the ground. Once you start, once bullets start flying up an airline, these people just trying to Malaysian airlines flight going from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur just gets shot out of the sky because it's, it happens to be flying over this Eastern part of Ukraine mm -hmm. where, you know, somebody thought it was a military jet and shot it down, you know? Mm -hmm. So once these things start, you know, that's more than just pieces on a board. And uh, so that's where we are. So this war, like something like 14,000 people have died since this all started. It, it never stopped. Like there have been like ceasefires uh, that have stopped like major military confrontations. But mm -hmm. this uh, this business in eastern Ukraine has been going on. And there's been like a low level of fighting uh, that, you know, ebbs and flows since 2014 to this day. So now we've got you caught up to since the fall of the Soviet Union to now. So in the next episode, we're going to go through some Cold War stuff. So if the last few years haven't given you enough anxiety, tune in <laughs> next week. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I'll stop the tape. You've been listening to Softcore History. Written and produced by Steve Vincent and Paul Schultz for Big Broccoli Studios. For more podcasts from Big Broccoli Studios, visit BigBroccoliStudios.com or look wherever you go to for your podcasts. Or look for wherever you listen to the Don't Panic Radio Show. Thanks for listening.